five mid mornings. Catch up. Let's talk about that on five FM. We're chatting to Stephanie Beauvais, an amazing psychologist, to sort of demystify self harm, explain what it is. Maybe you've got someone in your life who self harms, and you'd love to figure out how to help. I am going to mention the trigger warning once again, though the following interview might contain topics that some could find traumatizing, triggering, or harmful. Let's talk about that as a mental health awareness feature. And as a result, the conversations might bring up some uncomfortable emotions. So this is your trigger warning. Let's talk about that on 5FM. Stephanie Bouvet is a clinical psychologist focusing on various forms of therapy, such as cognitive behavior therapy, interpersonal process, gestalt, narrative, systemic family therapy. She's also passionate about assisting clients to attain their full potential and to derive optimum fulfillment in their lives. Today, we're talking about self-harm. So let's talk about that. Good morning, Stephanie. How are you? Morning. I'm well, thanks. And you? I'm so good. Thanks for asking. It's so strange because it is going to sound throughout the next few minutes, it's going to sound like I'm speaking to myself. But I promise you, I am speaking to an actual clinical psychologist with a lot of experience, uh, Stephanie Bouvet. Uh, And we both, both of our surnames start with B, which I thought was quite funny. I had a little bit of a giggle about that. Uh, We are going to talk about something a bit more serious this morning, which is self-harm. Let's start off by trying to clarify what is self-harm actually when people speak about it? So, you know, for me, uh, having been in practice for almost 20 years now, Mm -hmm. um, self-harm is a lot of things. So the sort of technical definition of self-harm is when, uh, and it's typically adolescents, but it can also um, happen throughout adulthood as well, is the deliberate self-infliction of damage to our body tissue Uh, or any kind of disfigurement. And what we need to remember is that it's quite socially unacceptable. Mm. So we need to realize that in today's day and age, self-harm is becoming quite a fashionable practice, but it's still typically socially unacceptable. So it includes uh, what is the most common form, which is cutting, Mm -hmm. but it can also include things like carving into your skin, scratching, uh, burning or branding, picking of scabs or uh, interfering with uh, the healing of wounds that we have, Um, often punching self or objects, um, inflicting oneself with an infection of some kind. Um, It also extends to things like pulling hair, pulling out eyelashes, eyebrows, head banging, and also then causing deliberate bruising of the body and sometimes even seriously breaking bones. What I think is most important to, to understand here is that um, self-harm is not always going to be uh, equivalent to suicidal ideation mm-hmm. or deliberate attempts to yeah. um, harm oneself permanently. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we, we just need to see it as, you know, what I see it in practice as is the sudden recur- recurrent intrusive impulses to just inflict this physical harm or hurt on one's body. And it becomes extremely compulsive and Mm. quite ritualistic in nature as well. We also need to just differentiate that self-harm in itself is not a diagnosis. So it's not a clinical diagnosis or a mental disorder on its own. It's really more of a kind of illness. 
Wow. Okay. I you also just taught me something new. Uh, I've had trichotillomania, which is one where you pull out your hair. I've had that since I was a very very little kid. I'm a little bit better in terms of controlling it. I also take medication for OCD, and you're right. It does become very compulsive. You can become obsessive about it as well, and it is very ritualistic. And I myself use it as a self-soothing sort of comforting thing. Uh, 100%. It's definitely not for me related to suicidal ideation, but it is related to uh, inflicting repetitive sort of injury to yourself or small amounts of pain sometimes helps you deal with like or it makes it feel like it's helping you deal with bigger pain and trauma and emotional harm and all that kind of stuff so it's very interesting I actually didn't know the trichotillomania or the dermatillomania which is one where you you know pick at your skin and stuff I didn't realize that that fell under or I suppose could be classified as self-harm but it definitely makes sense so um, related to that what could cause someone to self-harm and is it something that you're born with or could you all of a sudden one day wake up and be driven to self-harm so one thing I want to say about what Mm. we were talking about earlier is that um, as a as a tattoo addict myself (laughs) we need to differentiate that self-harm is not the same thing as tattooing of course uh, or piercing or substance abuse or anything like that so I just wanted to put that out there okay amazing there has been some frequent debate in society in more recent times around whether tattooing is a form of self-harm you know becoming addicted to the pain of tattooing yeah uh, and it's completely nonsense yeah I I mean for me as a layman I think tattoo falls more under artistic expression than it would self-harm and the the hurt or the pain of the tattoo is more like a byproduct of the art rather than the other way around Uh, because in the same vein we could say that playing sports would be self-harm or ballet dancers or self-harming when they're you know dancing on point because dancing on point is painful and does ruin their feet often for years to come Uh, but it's an artistic expression so you you can't really necessary. We have a lot of examples in human society where uh, pain is unfortunately just a byproduct of our artistic expression or our sports or our hobbies or whatever it is. Okay, so and let, anything yeah. in extreme form. Yes, of so course. You were, yeah. you were asking about what makes yes. um, someone self harm. Mm. Self-harm. Now, mm-hmm. So in my practice, the prevalence of self-harmers that come and see me are typically adolescents. Okay. So adolescents between the ages of about 12 and 14. So we're sure. talking about sort of peak um, adolescence. T- uh, and when you look at it, you know, at this stage for an adolescent, there are tremendous changes in brain chemistry and development. Yeah. And we see much higher rates of anxiety and depressions. Uh, in our adolescents than in younger children or in adults. Oh, wow. Um, And often that's why self-harm is is clearly associated with these kinds of mental health problems. So what happens with an adolescence is the brain begins to connect the temporary relief that they get from bad feelings to the act of self-harming. And so what the adolescent does is they then crave this relief the next time that the tension builds to that level. Mm. So what happens is that the act of self-harm or the behavior of self-harming actually reduces physiological and psychological um, uh, tension quite rapidly. So what they're looking for is immediate gratification. Obviously, they also at this age don't have the kind of levels of sophisticated coping mechanisms as adults do. So essentially, that's what what I'm seeing in practice. Now, I mean, a a researcher that writes tremendously on self-harm is a a person called Favaza, and she said, uh, ironically, that 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the role of self-harm and it being deliberate is actually a morbid form of self-help. And that's a quote. Oh, so generally, yeah. these people tend to have quite constricted ability to problem solve or to think about reasonable alternatives to, to um, coping. And they don't seem to have a healthy repertoire of coping mechanisms. So they revert to the self-harm as the only way of being able to self-soothe. Sure. So it helps them to escape, to manage and to what is most important to regulate emotions so primarily it's used as a coping mechanism to calm to reduce unbearable psychological distress it's a way of releasing tension um, of controlling now controlling is a big word because control features tremendously in the psychodynamics of self-harm um, so controlling things like overwhelming feelings and reducing what they often describe as emotional pain so the conflicts then resolved temporarily by using our body in a, in a destructive yeah, way. Yeah. My adolescents tell me in practice that it helps them to relieve anxiety, mm. agitation, anger, feelings of loneliness, aloneness, isolation, and also the feeling of being trapped. Yeah. So what's also important here is you ask the question about, um, you know, why do some people self-harm versus others don't? Is yeah. it something we're born with? Is it something we develop over time? Now, with any psychological conditions, there's the debate around nature versus nurture. So if we're looking here specifically at, at things like um, nature, uh, we look at things like biological theories. Now, um, when we have low levels of serotonin, for example, we know that these can cause this can cause depression. So a lot of people that self-harm will report to me that they're cutting creates a sense of euphoria mm. because there's a release of endorphins. So they almost become addicted to these endorphins being released um, so that it causes a feeling of being high in inverted commas mm. without obviously using substances. And one adolescent in particular that I see in my practice but that I've been seeing for a long time, she she used such beautiful words and she said to me, it was, she cuts to enliven feeling emotionally deadened. Shame. So when there's this sense of feeling emotionally deadened, mm. the cutting actually releases a sense of being able to feel. feel something. Now, when we look at the the nurture debate, so becoming self-harming as an older person, um, often self-harmers will use self-harm as a form of self-punishment. So to stop, for example, feeling feelings that are discomfort, uncomfortable, things that cause discomfort, like self-hatred, shame. It's almost like it's an attack on the self that sometimes replicates historical abuse. So with self-punishment, we see the nature-nurture debate together. Often, adolescents that self-harm, at least 60% of them report that there was some kind of history in childhood of either physical or emotional abuse. Uh, and sometimes obviously also sexual. Mm. Now, those that self-harm also tend to use self-harm as a way of what we call sort of anti-dissociation. That's the irony. A lot of people think that self-harm comes from a a place of wanting to dissociate, to move away from reality, but it's it's an attack against dissociation. So the physical pain distracts from emotional pain, which becomes then easier to deal with. So it's a defense against thinking about the past. Alternatively, is to dissociate from intolerable, intolerable, intolerable feelings that they currently feel. Yeah. Now, one of my adolescents also, which was just stunning in a in a brilliant therapy session that I had with her, um, she said her self harm is a way of actually communicating her distress. And as much as it's difficult for her to express emotions in other ways, in other words, 
using words, um, albeit maladaptive, her self-harm is an expression of emotion. So to make internal wounds external or visible. So it's the notion of the word being made flesh. Mm. So sometimes this is done to secure the care and help from others. Uh, and this particular adolescent, along with others and research, suggests that at least 90% of people that self-harm were actively discouraged in childhood from expressing any other emotions, emotions particularly yeah. emotions like anger and sadness. Yeah. So, I mean, another, another important thing to consider is a lot of people will self-harm as a way of resisting suicidal urges. So paradoxically, although it looks like they're harming themselves to the point of complete destruction, it's often a way of staying alive and preventing suicide. Yeah. So we need to differentiate that suicide, self-harm is not suicidal behavior. Those that harm themselves want to live. They feel like it's the only way that they can remain in control, to remain sane, intact, um, that, that kind of thing. So that's basically my take on sort of the nature nurture versus. Yes. Oh, and then one more thing I want to add is, you know, in terms of nature, dysfunctional and invalidating family environments. You know, when you look at environments that are characterized by child abuse, neglect, ignoring um, children when they want to express their emotion, um, there, there seems to be no other way for children to express this other than to take it out on themselves or to yeah. act it out in self-harming behavior. December Streets and Kickstart, such a cute track. Before that, Thames with me and you. We're wrapping up our conversation with Stephanie Beauvais about self-harm. Our final trigger warning for the morning. Remember, this interview might contain topics that some could find traumatizing, triggering or harmful. We are speaking about self-harm. So uh, when does it actually become serious enough? And I say serious in inverted commas. Well, serious enough to report it or maybe to seek help. You were saying that it's, you know, most frequently between the ages of 12 and 14, but it can happen at any point. Maybe you notice somebody in your life that you love or care about, or maybe your child or a sibling or whatever it is hurting themselves. When should you report it? When should you seek professional help? So just to, to classify, I mean, obviously we've been referring a lot to adolescents because mm. this is the, the, the prevalence, right? So yeah. the prevalence is the age of onset. Um, but research also shows that um, adolescents who self-harm often relapse and tend to take these behaviors into adult into life, adulthood, particularly yeah. if they're not earlier on. Mm. Um, and particularly if it's not to the point where it's noticeable or visible or to the point where it's not causing a dis disruption to their daily functioning. So here's where it gets tricky. Um, obviously, in terms of my practice, uh, my adolescents will always show me how they've self-harmed, and I will then judge in terms of conducting a risk assessment as to whether I am concerned or not to report yeah. okay. When I see that self-harm is becoming something that is self-injurious to the point of causing irreparable um, harm, Damage, in other words, yeah. where there's risk of infection, mm. where there's risk of to the point where there may be the need for a hospitalization, sure. um, then it needs to be taken seriously. Now, I'm going to backtrack and say, although self-harm itself is not a diagnosis, it's an illness, Yeah, um, it should always be taken seriously. Okay. So we cannot identify a risk to a child unless there is open, diverse communication mm. with parents. And that needs to happen without judgment. Of course. So a parent addressing this kind of concern when they do um, 
discover it, needs to remain absolutely neutral in their responses and Mm. they need to stay away from characterizing the behavior as bad behavior. Because the moment that we characterize something as bad, what happens is that adolescent, that child, even that adult, if it's coming from a concerned partner or friend, Mm. will likely re-harm themselves because of the guilt and the shame are left with. So essentially, we need to start off with simple, basic care for that person offer um, complete desire to support that person. And most importantly, we need to normalize the behavior. Now, I know a lot of people hearing this may disagree with what Mm -hmm. I said in terms of normalizing the behavior because we just explained that it's socially inappropriate. However, we need to normalize that this is this person's particular way of trying to cope with emotional distress. We also need to try and discuss with the person who's experiencing this the function and the role that self-harm is actually playing in this person's life because they may actually have ambivalence in the sense that they want to stop self-harming and find more adaptive ways of coping, but they're going to struggle to let go of something that feels like it works in that moment, that it gives them that immediate gratification. So obviously when there are signs that there is going to be irreparable harm, any signs of infection, open wounds, you know, like I said earlier, uh, interfering with the wound healing, then we do need to look at possible medical care. And then best approach is psychological um, intervention. Of course. And we've seen that the most adaptive responses, specifically with adolescents and adults who are looking for relief in the here and now, we need to look at, at practices like cognitive behavior therapy and also dialectical behavior therapy, which looks at addressing maladaptive emotional regulation, emphasizing emotional awareness, and most importantly, emotional acceptance, because people self-harm because they don't want to accept, in reality, the emotional distress that they're currently experiencing. And obviously, that therapy will also need to focus on using much more healthy, more adaptive coping mechanisms. So we need to help that person ultimately learn to deal with the feelings that seem unbearable, intolerable, without resorting to that typical coping strategy of self-injury. We need to help them identify healthy alternatives to dealing with these feelings. So you mentioned CBT and DBT. Those are obviously some of the treatment options that are available. Are there any other treatment options available for someone, whether it's yourself or someone you care about, someone you love, someone you're looking after, who might be self-harming? You've identified it and now you're going, okay, what can I do to help myself out of uh, this thing that I'm in, this thing that I'm feeling, this behavior, uh, or how can I help someone else? What treatment options are actually available in South Africa? So apart from the CBT and the DBT, which is really nice, particularly Mm. with adolescents, that the goal is ultimately to focus on behavior modification, right? Um, But from a a psychodynamic perspective, which is the main therapeutic modality that I work from, you know, every act in the current present moment has its bearing or roots in past relationship difficulties. So we need to also think about possibly looking at some psychodynamic therapy where we look at faulty or maladaptive attachments in the family so that we can then develop you know, far more of an involved family uh, process and also look at developing family connectedness. Now, some of the, I just want to talk a little bit to uh, to the psychodynamic conceptualization. Mm. Uh, what a client once said to me is that cutting, obviously, for her reflects 
and reveals externally her intrapsychic struggle. Yeah. Um, and for her, it's a longing to cut the ties that so tightly bound Ooh. her to certain relationships. Sure. So often for her, it's the wish to get away, um, the withdrawal and aggression turned inwards. So she explained to me that the opening up of the skin, actual physically opening up of the skin, is a wish to expunge or expose or almost extort what is felt to be bad and to externalize this. It's quite an angry, violent act, yeah. but it's directed at both the tyrannical object, so the object of the past, and obviously also then also the victim themselves. And it's a way of self-preservative. It's a preservative approach, can be looked at as sadomasochistically because it's ultimately self-destructive. But essentially, this person also described to me that it's a desire to gain control over this other person when boundaries were too enmeshed. So in other words, they were, were non-existent. The difficulty in being able to separate me from you. So a lot of people who self-harm from a psychodynamic conceptualization believe that the skin acts as a formal boundary between me and not me. Oh, so wow. when they cut, it reassures themselves that a boundary does in fact exist. Okay, sure. So that's from a psychodynamic perspective. Then obviously we also want to think about mindfulness, stress reduction techniques, looking at social skills and making them far more adaptive. We might also need to look at sort of peer diversion tactics because we've got this whole new um, peer contagion effect where a lot of people start to self-harm because it becomes fashionable and the yeah. norm. Um, and that's obviously within the realm of CBT type processes. And we've also found that group therapy helps these individuals as well to share their experiences with others who they can connect with because there's a relatability, relatedness to it. I just want to say one thing around medication because, yes. you know, a lot of people will want to sort of have that knee-jerk reaction. Of course. Uh, especially because there's impulsivity involved with yeah. self-harm is that there are currently no evidence-based pharmacological treatments for self-harm. Mm. Mm -hmm. So in other words, medication is found to have little, little benefit. As you stop the medication, the self-harm will continue. So these methods, I think, should often be discouraged unless, of course, the person is self-harming to such an extent that they require hospitalization. But sure. then you're looking at comorbidity with other psychological disorders that will then form the, the, the basis for treatment and not necessarily the self-harm. The self-harm then becomes a, a bit of a byproduct. And then lastly, I want to say a little bit about sort of alternative coping strategies or replacing these negative behaviours. So we could look at things like you mentioned earlier, some non-competitive physical exercise. I found that writing, you know, looking at poetry or journaling, playing music, uh, investing in a bit of a hobby of some kind, and then some diversion tactics like snapping a rubber band on a wrist, holding the frozen orange, please not ice because ice, ice itself can cause burning. Yes. And then marking the body with a red felt-tipped marker so that it appears to look like blood oh. rather than the blood itself. That's interesting. And then something which I've found useful with some clients is brushing. So stroking the body or brushing with a soft cosmetic brush, or you actually can get therapy brushes for those that are more tactile in nature. And then we also can think about diversion techniques like, you know, when you have the urge to self-harm, replace it with something more adaptive, like watching a comedy, cooking, surfing the net, going shopping, doing a bit of a puzzle. Um, it must be noted that in no way am I pro promoting these diversion techniques as avoidance behaviors 
because ultimately we're going to have to look at the cause and the source of the behaviors. Um, but distracting techniques as you are going through a therapeutic relationship. Okay, thank you so much, Stephanie. What a conversation about self-harm. I certainly learned a lot. Uh, If we would like to reach out to you, how do we get in touch? So I do have a Facebook page that people can um, have a look at. It's under Stephanie Beauvais, clinical psychologist. Um, They're also very welcome to um, contact me on my cell phone, which I use as my business line. Um, which uh, I can give out to you now. Mm-hmm. It's 084-078-2017 or alternatively an email address, which is S-T-E-F for Freddie Y, B for Benny O, V for Victory E at hotmail.com. So you're welcome Thank to you. get hold of me through any of those means. That's amazing. Stephanie Beauvais for Let's Talk About That on Self-Harm. Catch up on some of the best moments from 5 Mid-Mornings by going to 5FM's Catch-Up page on the 5FM app or 5FM.co.za.